Welcome to Humanity Wired, a podcast that explores the human rights impacts of technology today and tomorrow. I am your host, Amy Lair. I'm the director of the Human Rights Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On this podcast, I speak with software engineers, computer scientists, human rights defenders, and policymakers who share the same goal of making technology work for humanity, not against us. Initiatives and partnerships to promote ethical artificial intelligence, or AI, are proliferating within the AI community, often business-led. Ethics provide a critical framework to address challenges posed by AI, there's no doubt. But many argue that this approach needs to be complemented by a human rights perspective on AI. Today, we discuss the human rights impacts of AI and what governments and companies can do to make human rights integral in the design and use of AI. Joining us today is David Kay. David is a UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression. He's also a clinical law professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Law. With us also is Vivek Krishnamurti. He's a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School and is part of the Berkman Klein Center there, which focuses on technology. Vivek serves as a senior associate at the CSIS Human Rights Initiative as well. In addition to all these qualifications, Vivek happens to be my former colleague. David and Vivek, you've both written on the human rights impacts of artificial intelligence. David, you are writing in your capacity as a UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression and Opinion. And Vivek, you are an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard. It's been really interesting to me that the conversation about artificial intelligence is really focused on the role of ethics. There is a UN framework called the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights that specifically addresses the role of business as it pertains to internationally recognized human rights and actually tries to help companies look at that through a management framework. I happen to have been involved in developing that, uh, so I know it quite well. And obviously, there's a role for ethics in this conversation, but you both chose to look at this through a human rights frame. And so... I'd be really interested in hearing from both of you about what you think the advantages are of using a human rights frame to consider the impacts of artificial intelligence. David, why don't we start with you? Great. Uh, thanks for having me on here, and thanks for paying attention to this to this issue. I think it's you know clearly an important one, and I've learned a lot from what you all are doing at CSIS and also from Vivek here. So I'm glad to be on this podcast. You know, I would say that. The major distinction between a human rights framework and an ethical framework is that human rights provides us with a set of, you know, relatively, certainly compared to ethics, relatively clear standards related to the kinds of issues that I think are particularly relevant in the online context, whether it's freedom of opinion, freedom of expression, privacy, non-discrimination, and so forth, while you know, ethical frameworks are not as clear, are not as, certainly not recognized as binding as human rights norms may be, and tend to be focused on moral guidelines rather than legal principles. I think the the main importance of a human rights framework is that it allows, you know, in this context, companies, but also governments, to focus on the rights that individuals enjoy, whether they're online or offline. And I think framing the discussion around rights that people enjoy and that governments need to protect and, as you know, as companies need to respect, 
I think it allows us access to a whole range of sources of law rather than simply moral guidelines. And, and to me, that, that's an important way of thinking about the issues that we're going to talk about. Thanks. And Vivek, do you, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I'm delighted to be here uh, today, first of all, and to be speaking alongside David Kay, whose work on this issue and many other issues I, I deeply admire. I agree with everything David said. I would add one other aspect, which is to move beyond the online sphere, which I really think that AI is already starting to impact the full range of human rights which are protected in the international human rights system. So beyond political and civil rights to also include economic, social and cultural rights. So I think one of the advantages, as David pointed out, of using a human rights lens to think about artificial intelligence is that we have agreed language, we have agreed legal norms, we have agreed institutions, and agreed mechanisms to adjudicate human rights claims. So there's a lot of value in assessing some of the social impacts of AI from a human rights frame. So I think it was very interesting that in 2018 was sort of the year of AI and human rights, that initially people had been talking in terms of, of ethical values. Human rights have been injected into the conversation. But as David said, and I really do agree that Human rights has a lot of value, but there are some questions that AI raises which really, at least at this moment, need to be resolved using ethical frameworks because the human rights system, I think, is a work in progress and doesn't cover the full range of questions that AI is starting to pose. Vivek, give me two examples of what you think an ethics framework does help with where the human rights framework maybe doesn't reach. So a very classic problem from moral philosophy that has come back into currency with autonomous vehicles is the notion of the trolley problem, right? So if there's a runaway autonomous vehicle and it has to make a choice as to which life to spare and which life to take, which one should it do? Now, I've talked to a lot of people who develop AVs. They assure me that they program these things in a way to minimize all loss of life um, right. so that they optimize <laughs> for safety. But it's an interesting question. A human rights framework does not really allow us to make comparative judgments between the values of life. So MIT Media Lab did a cross-national survey asking respondents in 30 countries if there was a runaway autonomous vehicle and there was a baby and an elderly person, how should it be programmed? Should the car be programmed to spare the baby or spare the senior citizen? And there's profoundly different responses in different parts of the world to this question. And I would argue that that's an issue of ethics at this point, that we don't really have an answer in the human rights system as to whose life is more valuable. So that's one example of what I think is a purely ethical challenge. There are others as well. Sure. No, that, I think that's a great way of framing some of the differences, Vivek. And I remember reading that study. It was fascinating. But maybe if I, I, if I yeah, could jump David, in please. on this one, because... I actually think that is a really useful example of the power that an ethical framework can offer. I think eventually that for those kinds of questions, we're going to have to have a legal framework as well, because, you know, those are those are very difficult public policy questions, as well as moral questions. And you know, over time, I don't think we're going to want those decisions to be made strictly by companies. Now, companies are in the best position to make those decisions right now. But over time, we're going to want those to be public decisions. And so by public decisions, I think that means not just imposing a kind of ethical framework, but also imposing legal guidelines as to how 
companies should respond and when they get it wrong, whether there's accountability and remedy for that. So I agree with Vivek that we're in a moment where perhaps in the absence of hard law, we need some ethical guidelines. But I'm not sure I would separate them very clearly because over time they're going to converge and there'll be a public need for law. I wanted to clarify that uh, I actually agree with David on this point. And in our report, we identify this kind of problem as precisely the place where companies can no longer use the responsibility to respect human rights as a way of managing the impacts of technology that we do need government to step in at that point. Really, I was just trying to make the point that uh, we don't have a human rights answer to that question, which doesn't mean that we don't have legal answers right now. I mean, in this country, in the United States, we kind of have a legal answer to that, which is that we value younger lives more. We measure damages in law through the concept of disability-adjusted life years. So if you have more life years ahead of you than not, the value of your life in the eyes of the law is greater. Other cultures take a different view and their laws may reflect different decisions too. But I completely agree that that is precisely where we need public regulation of these technologies. Great. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. I'm going to change it a little bit to quit looking at the ethics versus human rights issues and rather really look at what do we find when we look at artificial intelligence through a human rights framework. So, David, you submitted a report to the UN last year on this topic. And, you know, there's lots of discussion, I think, right now about the potential for artificial intelligence to replicate existing societal bias, particularly in terms of kind of the bad data in, bad data out problem when bad data is used to train algorithms. But you also discussed impacts on some other rights that I think we're all sort of aware of, but we don't really use human rights terminology to describe it. And I'd, I'd love you to unpack a little bit more the impact of artificial intelligence on the right to form and hold opinions and freedom of expression. And can you start by explaining how search algorithms or advertisements can impede the right to form and hold opinions? Sure. Yeah, I think that the place that I would start really is just to explain that because my mandate is specific to freedom of opinion and expression, so I was looking in particular at AI in the context of those rights, and those rights are guaranteed by international human rights law and the right to freedom of expression, which is found in a number of different instruments, but in particular in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, guarantees everyone's right to hold an opinion without interference, and it guarantees everyone's right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds, regardless of frontiers and and through any media. And so on the opinion side, you just have to admit right up front that, you know, the jurisprudence, the law around the right to hold an opinion without interference is relatively underdeveloped compared to freedom of expression. Nonetheless, there is this standard, there's this rule that governments are expected both not to interfere with one's development of an opinion, but also to protect an individual's right to hold that opinion. So the question for me was, you know, how does artificial intelligence, how do the mechanisms of AI or the technologies of AI implicate the right to to hold an opinion without interference. And I think there's a couple of things that I could identify here. So, and, and many of them are obvious, probably to your listeners and to people who are conversant with issues on social media and so forth. And I think the principal one, the one where I'd start is around content personalization, right? So it's clear that, that social media and search engines are providing people with a range of data, a range of information 
that is based on you know pretty opaque standards and technologies to people. So whereas in the past there was certainly some kind of clarity as to you know how mass media for example was picking and choosing what would be delivered to an individual i mean you'd open a newspaper or you'd go to broadcast news and you would know that there's an editorial element to that well in online space you know the editorial function is essentially within the algorithm and we have very limited insight into how that kind of personalization of information that reaches us is shaping the way we think about the world, shaping the way we see the world. So this is kind of an open-ended way to answer your question, but I think that one thing that we see on social media and search is that that kind of delivery of information is maybe not interfering with opinion, but it's certainly shaping opinion in ways that individuals by and large don't see. And that lack of transparency, the opaqueness around that, I think is a real problem for the long-term development of opinion by individuals. So that's just, that's one area where in the report, what I was encouraging was some more detailed thinking about how that works, how those mechanisms work, and how to ensure that individuals have greater autonomy in choosing the kind of information that they see and the personalization of the information that they get, rather than the way it operates now, which is very much driven by opaque forces. Yeah, David, I, I think that was definitely one of the issues you focused on that I found really interesting. And of course, that driving of people to particular information has really important impacts, not only on people's ability to form an opinion freely, but also obviously for democratic processes, for having commonly understood facts, right? It has these broader societal implications as well. I mean, obviously, the follow-on question is, what can companies do about that? Or what can governments do about that? Are you still sort of in the thought process on that? Or do you have some really concrete recommendations? Yeah, I mean, I think, so here's the major problem that I see around this. And that is that companies have all the information, and we have very little. So in order to, to sort of generate a discussion, a public policy discussion, you know, a human rights oriented discussion that that makes sense, the companies simply need to be more transparent about the nature of their AI, about what are the inputs into their technologies, how are they delivering content to individuals. Once we have a clearer view, a more transparent insight into how those decisions are being made, I think we can have a better set of discussions around the impact of AI and the tools and the choices that the companies should be making, and also a better discussion around public regulation and whether regulation makes sense. You know, my own view is that government should not be getting involved in content discussion around content regulation in particular, but certainly right now they could be engaged in encouraging, maybe in some cases requiring more clarity from the companies as to the nature of, you know, their content standards here. At the end of the day, at least in the context in which my study was focused, I'm talking about AI's impact on content and on other human rights around freedom of expression right. and privacy and opinion. And I think that transparency would really be a, you know, a step in the right direction for having a productive discussion around these issues. Great. And on that topic of freedom of expression, I just want to touch on one other impact you identify that I think is also really important and very pertinent to just broader public policy discussions right now. So you discussed the impact of 
AI-enabled content moderation and removal tools and some of their weaknesses and the fact that really one of the concerns about algorithms being used for that purpose is that it can lead to excessive content takedown. I think one of the quintessential examples, at least those of us kind of in the human rights space are aware of, is in the context of Syria, right, with these civil society organizations and just individuals who are posting footage of war crimes so that there was a record of, of these violations in some capacity to maybe prosecute them someday. And as some of us know, this was taken down thousands of videos by, I think, YouTube's algorithm, no human involved. So this obviously affects freedom of expression, right? That basically certain forms of expression are taken down. What do you think companies should do about that or governments? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and, and that's a really good example. It's a good example in part because in those situations, so in the situations of collecting imagery and video and other information about you know, potential war crimes in Syria, the algorithm was essentially performing as designed. You know, it was taking down images, you know, that were inconsistent with YouTube's community guidelines, with their standards. Right. And it was an effort to take down, like, terrorist content, basically. Yeah, right. Exactly. It would frame it either as as terrorist content or it might be certain kinds of content that is grossly offensive. So, you know, dead bodies is is an example of that. So it it was operating as designed. And the problem is that AI has a really difficult time with context. You know, so YouTube relies on the user to indicate when the user uploads particular material, what the context is, whether it is, you know, educational or kind of reportage kinds of or documentary kind of footage. And that's not always going to be possible for a user. First of all, many, many users, particularly in conflict zones, have no idea about those kinds of contextual issues that they can add to particular content that they're uploading. But this is just one example where, you know, when AI functions, it may function in a way to take down content that is really important, you might say essential to the public interest, you know, and that's in a context where we're talking about images. I mean, if we're talking about natural language, the ability of AI to deal with text is even more complicated. You know, how can it distinguish between satire and humor and racism or other you know kinds of content that might be inconsistent with their rules? So, you know, those are the kinds of issues where there's some very serious problems. And I get what the companies respond by saying is, you know, if you're YouTube, we have something like, you know, 500 hours of content op- uploaded per minute or something like that. Right. right? The it's, volume is enormous. Yeah. Right. It's crazy how much content is uploaded to all the major platforms. And their ability to moderate all of that certainly requires some automation. The problem is in doing that, in using these AI tools, a lot of legitimate content is almost certainly going to get swept in. And so I think the the trick, and I would say even the obligation of the companies, is to devote more and more attention to the content moderation to ensure, particularly in those spaces where the platforms essentially... Um, provide the public square, um, you know, where where they are actually are, um, you know, engaging in a kind of, um, you know, regulation of public space, that they really need to devote the resources um, to provide a uh, a human review of um, of content and. Again, I get it. It's a, it seems like an almost impossible task for the companies, you know. Yeah. But these aren't um, uh, these aren't cash-strapped companies. I think they have an obligation to do that. 
Great. Well, I think I think that's obviously a very um, timely topic, right? We're seeing interesting laws in Australia being proposed, the EU counterterrorism laws. If we have time, we may come back to that topic a bit more. And I would just say, you mentioned Australia being proposed. You know, this was proposed on Tuesday and adopted today. Yeah. You know, so one of the one of the risks is because I don't want to put it all on all on the companies. One of the risks is that governments, particularly in the aftermath of really terrible um, you know, terrorism, um, you know, that they react very quickly and they don't really think through the kind of regulation that they're imposing. Yeah. So I think and just for for listeners who aren't familiar with this Australian law, it's just to, to roughly paraphrase it, it's a law that creates potentially um, criminal liability for tech executives if, if their companies don't take down offensive material quickly enough. So, right, so the, right, the, the exactly. big concern is that it's going to have a chilling effect um, and, and really cause them to take down too much content because of the potential penalties and the time restrictions, which are really, really hard to meet. I do want to turn to Vivek because, Vivek, you, you sort of used a slightly, I guess you had a wider aperture, I would say, than David, partly for the reasons David laid out, which is that he has a very specific mandate to focus on two sets of rights, expression and, and freedom of opinion. Um, so, so, Vivek, when, when you started looking at the human rights impacts of artificial intelligence, you looked at it more broadly, um, and you already referred to this. Um, you were looking at, you know, economic um, rights and social rights and so forth when you thought about the impacts of AI, and you were looking at both positive and adverse impacts. So it would be great if you could talk a little bit about some of what you found. So I thought one of the really important areas you've looked at was credit scoring. There's now a use of algorithms to develop credit scores, which can be really helpful, but it sometimes does involve, for example, looking at social media and other sort of more personal aspects of people's lives that normally wouldn't have been part of credit scoring. The One of the positive impacts, and you may be able to identify more, was that suddenly new groups of people might actually have access to credit who were never considered creditworthy before because basically their files were too thin. There wasn't enough data to make a determination. But there are some potential complexities to this as well. So it'd be great if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Sure, Amy. Glad to do so. Um, so I'm going to start a little bit with you know the genesis of our report and the methodology that we developed. So we were asked by the Canadian government to really consider um, what are the human rights impacts of artificial intelligence? And in doing so, um, you know, we thought it would be a good thing to map out um, impacts on the full range of internationally protected rights. Now, there's obviously been a very robust conversation around automated content moderation, and that's one of the six cases that we do cover in our report. Um, but we wanted to have a, a wider lens, in part to drive home the point that these technologies are being used um, in a lot of different parts of society um, and that they actually you know, impact the full range of human rights that are protected um, by international human rights law. One of the things I thought that was really helpful in your report was the fact that you focused not just on technology companies, but you really drew, emphasized the fact that there are lots of other industries implicated in this conversation and that really need to be part of it. No, absolutely right. That, again, the technology industry 
when we think about big tech, certainly they are major users of algorithms and the delivery of their own products and services, um, but they are also developers of these technologies that are used um, in the wider economy. So I think that was uh, important context for a report. And then, you know, we also just sort of took uh, in terms of, of trying to figure out how do we assess the impacts of these technologies on rights, we came up with a model that seems pretty self-evident that um, in judging the human rights impacts of, of AI or of automated decision-making in a field, we really need to look at the difference that the introduction of this technology makes over the status quo that has persisted. And, you know, it seems, again, a simple point, but it's a profound one because these technologies are being introduced in, you know, in society against a background of pervasive inequality, of unfairness, of imperfect outcomes in lots of different segments of society. So when we judge the impact that the technology is making, we need to be mindful that things were not perfect in the world as it was. And actually, that brings us to the, the history of credit scoring, which is really interesting that, you know, credit scores have been around for over a century now. And there are a lot of motivations for the development of early credit scores, from the fact that early lending decisions were made on the most arbitrary of bases, where uh, it depended on, on a banker's intuitive sense of whether or not someone was a good credit risk. And you can imagine all of the ways that unfairness and discrimination propagated in that system. So the entire enterprise of developing credit scores, you know, in the early part of the 20th century was premised on trying to be more objective in trying to determine indicators that would reliably predict how well someone is going to be uh, able to repay a loan, whether or not they were a good credit risk. And at the time, uh, we had manually generated algorithms, right? We didn't have computing technology, so we had statisticians who went and looked for indicators, they did a bunch of regressions, and then they came up with a score. And as technology progressed over time, those scores um, took into account more data and got more sophisticated. Give me some examples of the kind of data that used to be considered. So I think historically, it's mostly been data from the financial sector, right? Data of the kinds that is generated by banks. And actually, this raises a really important point, which is that conventional credit scores are black boxes in the way that a lot of AI-generated outputs are as well. Um, these are proprietary instruments developed by these credit scoring companies. And at least in the United States, until very recently, you didn't even have the right to access your credit score um, without going through considerable difficulties, right? So it's only now that we have some modicum of transparency when it comes to conventional credit scoring. But you can imagine all the ways that a conventional credit score encodes bias, right? Um, so there are the systemic indicators of bias, which is that there are certain populations which are underbanked, and those correlate uh, quite strongly to uh, you know, racial and other kinds of categorizations in our society, right? So disadvantaged people have not had access uh, to the financial system such that they have a record. Um, but even with this enterprise of credit scoring trying to drive objectivity into the financial system, there are humans making decisions at every point. And there have been many instances in just the last decade um, of lawsuits against banks and other financial institutions for engaging in racially discriminatory lending practices, right? So that's the backdrop of history into which algorithmic technology is being dropped in. Now, there's a real question in this country and many others as to how should these technologies and the businesses that are using them, should how should they be regulated? Should they be 
um, subject to the usual um, set of financial industry regulations, or are they something different? Um, the promise of the technology is clearly that with more and better data, we can more objectively determine people who happen to be good credit risks who have been excluded from the traditional financial system. And the case for that is the greatest in the developing world, right? Where, again, financial penetration is much lower than in the industrialized countries. And I mean, this is a model that's been pioneered by microfinance over the last 30 years, right? They have gone and looked for people who seem to be good credit risks and made loans. And it's it's the next generation of that approach using more data to generate more scores, uh, more and better scores. But the, the risks are obvious. Uh, the risks come from bias encoded in data, from um, exclusion from being uh, having data collected about you, such that there's no informational basis to make a decision about you. And the fact that this is a human enterprise, right? Um, it is human beings um, who are usually in positions of power that are deciding to automate something using an AI system, uh, who have some input into designing it, and then have to interpret the outputs of the system in the social world. And I think this is a point that David's report makes wonderfully um, in the early pages. There's this diagram of all the places where, you know, humans are still in the loop, no matter how you automate these systems, right? So, like, that's where a lot of the, many of the human rights risks, uh, thinking beyond uh, the right to you know, equality and non-discrimination, can enter into these technologies. Vivek, isn't another potential challenge around the fact that social media is used to make some of these determinations? And so I've heard some people argue, for example, that that if people become aware that, let's say, their social media is part of a decision like this, that it might actually chill speech online? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is this is a live question, and you know, social media platforms are actually quite concerned about this. And I believe that the terms of service of many of them uh, prohibit their use in eligibility determinations. But your your question cues up a larger point, which is the question of what are the fair sources of data to consider in making a decision. There can be information that is highly predictive of whether or not someone is going to be a good credit risk or at a risk of reoffending, for example, that we think is unfair, either from a human rights perspective, and we have a system that's developed that allows us to adjudicate that from a legal perspective, but also from ethical uh, perspectives as well, right? I think this is the deep and difficult question that automation is asking us to pose, not just about you know automated decision-making, but about human decision-making too, which is what are the appropriate factors for us to consider in deciding. So, you know, in criminal justice, we exclude a lot of very relevant evidence because we think it introduces unfairness into the system, that it would just be unfair to the defendant to have, uh, for example, their past criminal record introduced. It can be very predictive of guilt, but we think that we should not go there. Um, so as we engage in this uh, societal enterprise of, of more data-driven decision-making, um, that conversation becomes ever more pressing. For both David and Vivek, kind of picking up on this last point that Vivek made, is this somewhere where we need to see more of a steer from government? Because this seems like a very hard decision for the private sector to make on their own. I, I mean, I would say, so I, first of all, that was a, a brilliant overview of um, you know, some of these core, these core rights-oriented issues that, that AI poses. And, 
You know, I think that if we could just step back for a second, then I'll answer that specific question. You know, I think the important thing for for people, particularly in the United States, to recognize is that um, is that we're talking about, I mean, particularly when we're talking about the largest platforms, we're talking about global platforms, and so these are decisions that that are really difficult to make only in the context of American law, right? I mean, we could imagine thinking these things through from a, you know, a constitutional and a statutory perspective in the United States, but that that wouldn't pertain to any of the hundreds of millions or billions of users outside the United States for, for these platforms. So, I mean, that's one reason that the kind of discussion that Vivek was highlighting here really is a question for for human rights law, at least as a as a framing for us at this moment. And and I do think that we're at a stage now where public regulation is uh, almost unavoidable because the impact on public goods and on individual rights is so massive. And to leave it only to, you know, to the to the profit-making private sector uh, to make these kinds of decisions, I think is, you know, it leaves the public out of it. It leaves uh, sort of democratic accountability out of it. And, and it will certainly lead to outcomes that, you know, might be positive for the companies, but not necessarily positive for public interest. I mean, I would say that there is a, an important role for companies to play in embracing their human rights responsibility and taking them seriously. And, you know, I, for one, am heartened by the fact that at least the large technology companies are, in fact, doing this. You know, they're conducting human rights impact assessments of their algorithmic technologies writ large. I've participated in two HRIAs uh, in the last six months of particular applications. So companies are thinking about this and thinking about it seriously. But, you know, there comes a point where I really do think that some of these questions are most appropriately decided in a democratic context. Um, And that's in part because of, you know, the social role of business is restricted, right? Businesses have a particular function to play in our society, but there are certain kinds of decisions that are just beyond their scope and their capability to make. And, you know, I feel that that's especially clear when it comes to economic, social, and cultural rights, where we have this notion of governments being duty-bound to progressively realize them through society. Um, so companies and business activity have a role to play in that. But some of the, the hard trade-offs that come with automation and displacement, for example, are precisely the kinds of issues that businesses can't deal with alone, right? So it's interesting that that we have this great need for the government and for democratic process to come in here precisely at a moment when our demo- democratic institutions are in some crisis throughout the world. So I really hope that we're able to, to find a way to make these institutions more functional. And in the meanwhile, it's great that there is this multi-stakeholder conversation that has developed and has been quite successful in a number of different spheres in addressing some of some similar dilemmas that have come up around business and human rights um, over the last couple of decades. So, you know, it's nice to see that at work in this space too, but the need for government to step up here is pretty, pretty strong. Thanks, Vivek. And, and I think it is interesting going back to the opening question, right, which was around why use a human rights framework. Well, something like the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights really lays out both the duties of governments that already exist in human rights law and fleshes them out further, and then talks about what the responsibilities of business are, but those aren't the same as governments, precisely because 
businesses aren't democratic institutions, right? And asking them to make some of these decisions on behalf of society is really challenging um, and really not what the human rights system calls for. I really want to thank you both for your time today. I think this was a really fascinating discussion and uh, look forward to continuing it offline. Thanks for having us. It's always great to talk with you and with Vivek. Absolutely. Thank you, Amy. And uh, thank you, David, for a wonderful, uh, stimulating discussion today. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the intersection of technology and human rights, visit the Human Rights Initiative webpage at CSIS.org. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast to help other people find us too.